there is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo. And you can get the word out about your products for free by using you know sites like Twitter, Product Hunt, and Reddit. There's no time like the 2020s to build a company. Yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live you know, in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are. And you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of forward-thinking investors, I want to dive into this world. I want to help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists, and how do they think about their day-to-day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build billion-dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. All right. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Investors, where we talk to investors about founders, markets, and how they broke into venture. Today, I'm very excited to talk to Natty Zola, who's a partner at Matchstick Ventures. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks for having me. I'm great. Awesome. I, I am very excited to have you on and learn more about what you're working on You know, with your firm, Matchstick Ventures. Uh, my first question is, you know, venture is a windy road. It's very, you know, it's kind of like opaque. How did you make your way into venture capital and to come to kind of kind of get doing matchstick ventures? Yeah, my journey started as a founder. And so I, I moved um, to my home in Boulder, Colorado in 2008 to start a company with my childhood best friend. And we moved into our parents' basements to teach ourselves how to code. Didn't realize we were walking into this amazing startup ecosystem emerging in Boulder and uh and started building a company and through that process i met and ended up working with some amazing investors and i always thought in the back of my head i might want to do that someday but at that time i was really focused on being a founder and so i think what i realized through that process was um i had great role models who were investors the investors in my company and those that i was close with who weren't investors in my company were were transformational for me in terms of my growth and really helped our company. And so I think I had really good experiences with investors. And I uh, I thought someday I'd want to do that. And then when my founder journey uh, concluded, I had an opportunity to work at Techstars and run the accelerator in Boulder. And that was a chance for me to learn, do I love investing? Am I good at it? Can I resonate with founders? And and was really lucky to, to go through that process um, in that role and found a deep love for working with entrepreneurs. And I think the thing that has really pushed me to go further and further into and being an investor is I'm just lucky. Every day I get to work with inspired, obsessed, super smart people and try to help them shape the future. And so, you know, when I look back when when I graduated college in 2005, did I think I was going to be a VC and was that the path that I set out for myself? No, but I just always was trying to build things. I was always trying to work with smart, interesting people and what a great way to do it uh, as a VC and work with entrepreneurs. 
Yeah, that, that's an awesome story. Um, and, uh, you know, as we were talking about, you know, before we started recording, you know, I love that it kind of starts in, in Boulder, Colorado. I have a deep love for Colorado and the tech scene there. And, you know, we'll probably ask you a couple of questions um, later later in the show about that. But but I think right now I'm kind of curious about, you know, Matchstick Ventures. Can you kind of give me an overview of like, you know, what what kind of what kind of fund is it you know early stage late stage super early you know what kinds of stuff do you like investing in just kind of overview tell me about um a little bit about the fund great yeah so matchstick ventures is a pre-seed and seed focused fund so we're some of the earliest investors and in companies we focus on software and technology companies because that's the experience that we have in the network of folks that we can help connect our startups to and then we have a geographic lens so we're investing almost exclusively in startups that are connected to the Rockies region, since I'm based in Colorado, and my partner, Ryan, is based in Minneapolis, so the north region of the US. The re reason we're focused on these two regions is, one, it's where we've built a big network for over 10 years, where we have a reputation, and where we think we have a sourcing advantage and a supporting advantage. So for startups that have a connection to these markets, we can actually move the needle for them um, with the network and experience we have in our markets. The second reason is these markets are rapidly growing. The entrepreneurial density is really high. We're seeing a huge shift, um, an acceleration of that shift through COVID as more and more folks move out of the coastal hubs. And so these markets have incredible entrepreneurs with the same ambition as their coastal peers. They're just based in a different place. And so there's a opportunity for us to back great entrepreneurs that are currently overlooked by many other investors, but have the same ambition, like I mentioned earlier. And so the we, we describe these markets as rapidly growing yet still underserved. And so for those reasons, we focus on these markets and feel like we can bring to the founders in these markets that coastal mindset, the coastal level connections without having them have to raise money from the coast at the seed or pre-seed level. So you mentioned there that that these are two regions where, you know, entrepreneurship is booming, it's growing and COVID has accelerated that, you know, as we all know, COVID, you know, is COVID, it's been pretty horrible for a lot of people, um, you know, but at the same time, it has changed markets and, and, and some for the better, some for worse. And, you know, me, myself living in Phoenix, I've noticed kind of this change to an entrepreneurial kind of growth. How, how do you think, um, you know, Boulder, Colorado, or more so just maybe the region that you target has changed in the last, you know, five or seven years. And what do you, do you have any predictions on now that we kind of live in a post COVID era? Um, what does that look like for the next five or so? What do you think about kind of growth in the regions? Yeah, well, it's been really cool for me to see. I've been an entrepreneur in the Colorado ecosystem since 2008. So I've had almost 13 years now of experience watching an entrepreneurial community develop and flourish. And I think what we saw through the growth of Colorado and Boulder and Denver as a startup hub is really happening everywhere, which is first and foremost, the proof that you don't have to be in a coastal city to start a company. So whether that's Phoenix, Salt Lake City, uh, Cedar Rapids, Minneapolis, like all these cities, you can live there and build a great company. You have resource, you have access to talent, um, especially now in terms of COVID, since a lot of talent is willing to work remotely. You have um, largely lower costs of living, so it's a little bit easier to start a company. Obviously, the tools of entrepreneurship have been democratized, so it's never been easier for someone to spin up the technology that they need to start their company. So the barriers to entry are much lower. And 
you know, frankly, people want to optimize for their quality of life. And for some folks, that means, you know, I still want to work 75 hours a week on my startup, but on the weekends, I want to disappear in the mountains and go mountain biking, or I want to get in the canoe and go paddling on the lake or whatever it may be. And so, you know, I think the trend that we saw start in Boulder in 2008 was, hey, you can build a company anywhere. All you need is um, some, some rich ingredients for a startup community, which can start really small. And Brad Feld wrote a great book on, on all the elements of a startup community. But if you have some of those elements, you can really build an entrepreneurial community anywhere. And this really happened in Boulder from 2008 um, till the present. It really kickstarted off in Denver, probably in about 2012. And largely what's happened in the last five years since then is it just continues to grow. More and more folks moving to the area, more and more startups showing up. And what's happened in the DNA of the city and the state has become an innovation or technology driven DNA, which has been great for the state because we used to have a lot more agriculture, farming, um, animal products based economy, which has shifted now to more of a technology based economy. And that's been great for the state. And so I think what you're seeing is that Colorado had this transition happen about 10 years ago, all the surrounding state, I think Utah also the same, all the surrounding states maybe are five years behind, but also having this transformation around a digital economy. And I think COVID accelerated that by probably two to five years as well, just in terms of investor appetite to invest outside of their normal geographies, the obvious spread of talent that's happened as people have moved out of um, urban centers and coastal cities during COVID and seeing the, you know, the potentially greener pastures of, a, of another city or state. And so what I think will play out in the next five to seven years is, is a continuation of this, where we're going to see billion dollar companies created in, in untraditional markets, a lot more investor capital flowing into those markets, entrepreneurial ecosystems sprouting up left and right. And in the long run, this is going to create a great spread of opportunity across the heartland of the US that maybe um, was probably going to happen anyways, but COVID will accelerate by two to five years. Yeah, as as someone living in Phoenix, I definitely agree agree with all that, and I see it I see it happening. Right, it's really exciting. Um, so, so you mentioned with 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 your with your firm, your pre seed and C's, your you know early fir first check, if not the first you know couple of checks you know in, because you're so early, I'm sure you get a lot of inbound. Right, you get a lot of you get you see a lot of deals. Um, so how do you look at some um, opportunities? Are you kind of team first, market first, thesis driven overall, like how, how do you kind of filter through all of the kind of deals that may, might come across your desk in a given day? Yeah, I learned some ama an amazing heuristic while working at Techstars and running the accelerator there. And, and we looked at six things in rank order there. And those have really translated to what we look at as a fund at Matchstick Ventures as well. And those six things in rank are, order are team, 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 market, progress, idea. So it's obviously a cheeky way for us to remind ourselves that the, at the earliest stages, it's really about finding the right people to invest in. And the, the people, in my experience, the people have been the driving force of the value creation in a startup way more than the market or the idea or the progress maybe that they're showing up um, in a meeting with us at. And at the end of the day, is, this is a human endeavor. It's a human sport. And we end up spending a lot of time together. So we want to really fall in love with the people that we get to work with. So we are founder or, or human driven investors at that stage. I do think there's an argument to be made that, you know, it's, it's really important that you have a great market, 
But I think that you can overthink it at the pre-seed stage around what market the startup is in and uh, the tail, potential tail or headwinds of that market. And ultimately, the most ambitious entrepreneurs will figure something out if you give them the resources and support them on their journey. So that's the heuristic that we follow. Outside of that, we are generalist software investors. So we've, we invest B2B, B2C marketplaces. We are opportunistic on that side of things. There are some areas where we have a little bit more affinity and a little bit more experience, but generally we're trying to meet with the most interesting entrepreneurs we can find, have them paint a picture of the future that we believe in and want to help create, and then back them in that mission. So we are, we are first and foremost founder-driven investors. And I think that also comes from our experience, both my partner and the fund and I were entrepreneurs. So, you know, this isn't a, this isn't just us looking at some financial opportunity. It's wanting to work with entrepreneurs because we've been there. We love entrepreneurs. We think that they do build a better future. And so we want to, we want to work with the best and brightest folks that we can. One of the things that I like a lot about venture is that at the end of the day, like the product is kind of the, the, the founders that you back and, and their success, but so much goes into that and the successes of people that you back. So my question for you is what's an average day in the life for you, uh, uh, you know, working on this firm, you know, are you writing checks, like, you know, markets, supporting founders, like what, what's a day in the life for people that may not know, you know, what an average VC works on? Yeah. Well, there's more diversity in the day than I expected, frankly. So when I think about, uh, maybe I'll think about, I'll, I'll tell you how I frame my day. So every morning I wake up and the first thing I think about is how can I help one of our companies? So that's what I should be spending the vast majority of our time on. And that could be helping them make a key hire, helping them decide a strategic direction, helping them problem solve a critical issue, helping make a connection to a customer. I don't know, whatever it is. And so the first thing I think about is how can I help one of our companies. And I try to block time in my day to make sure that I do that. That's the most important thing. Second is, second most important thing is how can I go out and meet new potential investment candidates, but also how can I help strengthen the ecosystems that we're in by doing a workshop, doing a talk, doing office hours, somehow giving energy into the ecosystem. And I found if you take that give first ethos and put energy into the system, you know, you'll find the startups, like a lot of good things will come. So the second thing I think about is how am I helping the ecosystem? How am I finding more entrepreneurs to potentially help, whether that's through money, advice, connections, et cetera. Um, then the third thing that I think about is um, what, what, what am I doing to, to serve our investors? So at the end of the day, you know, we have investors who invest in us. And of course we, we work for them and we want to make sure that we're, we're providing them the data that they need. We're building a deep relationship with them. These are long-term relationships and going out of our way to, to be accessible to them. And then kind of at the end of that list, you know, priority four is, uh, email, all the other stuff that comes up. And so my day tends to be a little bit different because I'm, I'm going through those priorities. Um, on any given day, I probably meet with seven to 10 startups. Um, that includes portfolio companies, but also other companies, whether we're just helping them or, or exploring an investment. I'm probably spending two or three hours in email just because it inevitably, um, that's a, that's a key communication tool. Uh, I'm probably working on a workshop or giving, a, a presentation to a tech stars program, doing office hours, something like that on any given day. And then I do try to carve out time to, uh, do some of the higher level strategic stuff on the fund to make sure we're building our platform to help entrepreneurs succeed. We're, we're meeting the right potential co-investors. 
because we really uh, try to build relationships with follow on capital to help our startups. So a lot of other stuff. So I would say, you know, the days are full. Um, I typically work eight to five um, where I'm at my computer all day. Now in COVID, pre-COVID, I was definitely filling that time with in-person meetings. I always take off 5 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. to be with my kids and do family dinner. And then I would say three or four nights a week, I work from 7.30 to 10 or 10.30 p.m., catching up on the day and prepping for the next day. So, you know, no one works harder than our entrepreneurs, but uh, Ryan and I try to be a close second in terms of um, the amount of effort we're putting into the portfolio and fund on a on a daily basis. And how is working on a matchstick different from being a program manager at Techstars? Um, they're both kind of investment roles, um, but um, what are some of the key differences or at least like things that you've maybe learned from, from going from one to the other? Yeah. I would say there's a lot of overlap and for two and a half years, I did both roles. And so what was nice was that I got a lot of leverage out of doing both of those. Frankly, the lens that we take on supporting entrepreneurs is the same. So the way that we worked at Techstars was this unique opportunity to really sit on the same side of the table as the entrepreneur through the Techstars program in this condensed 13 week period. And what we try to do at Matchstick is take the same approach of how do we make sure we're sitting on the same side of the table really working closely hand in hand to help this entrepreneur achieve their dreams, except for it, instead of it happening over a 13 week intense period where we're in each other's face day in, day out, and you know at the whiteboard or whatever it may be, we spread that over 13 months. And so we've built a, an engagement model with our startups where um, we have a process around how we're engaged to make sure that we can help. But at the end of the day, you know, it comes down to the same ethos, which is we work for the entrepreneur. Uh, you know, I think when you meet other investors, the, there's sort of the opposite mindset that the entrepreneur is working for the investor. We believe strongly we work for the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur is the one creating value. And it's really, you know, when they say jump, we say how high. And um, I don't know, I guess maybe the, just the time frame around how we work with companies has changed a little bit. But outside of that, not much. And then for uh, for founders that are listening to this, that that, that want to jump, they want you know they they want to raise capital, they they want to build you know giant companies, but they might be early, they might be kind of raw to, to the space. What is one thing that you wish these founders knew about venture capital and startups um, that they usually don't know? Something that could potentially aid them in fundraising or building a startup. Yeah. If I had to boil it down to one thing, I would point them to a blog post by Mark Suster that says that's called investors invest in lines, not dots. And um, since your question was not about how to how, you know, what should they do around company building? This is directly related to how do how should they approach venture capital and stuff like that? That is that to me is the most accurate way to streamline your investment process. If you show and, and the gist of that article and it's worth reading, it is. If you show up and you pitch an investor, that investor has one data point on you. It's really hard for that investor to get to know you, to have any sense of the trajectory of the business. Instead, if you start building a relationship before you need to raise money or before you want, want to raise money and, and build a bunch of touch points with that investor, the likelihood of them investing is dramatically higher because they get a lot of data points and, and can start to chart the course of that entrepreneur's execution, the opportunity in the market. And I'll say, uh, I think that plays out totally true. When I was a founder, we did that. Frankly, we do that in raising our fund. We build long-term relationships with potential investors in our fund long before we, we ask them for money so that they can see how do we execute? How do we approach our business? 
what's actually happening. And so the best thing you can do is, is carve out about 10% of your week. Should you think you're going to be a venture scale company that wants to raise venture? And that's a whole topic in its own right. But let's say you do think that spend 10% of your week building those relationships long before you need to ask for money. And then when you ask for money, uh, it'll be much more likely. I guess the other adage you can add on to that is if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. And so that enables you to spend two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 months asking for advice before you ask for money. And then money will be much more likely to come. So I have a question I wasn't planning on asking, but it's very relevant to what you just said. And it's a, it's a slightly self-serving because I'm curious for my own use case. So I, I have a extremely early stage company. I'm not trying to raise venture right now. I definitely will at some point. Um, if I, is it kind of a good idea, like for your point that you just mentioned to, to like almost bring in investors and like get their feedback on a deck or on this or on that telling them like, I'm not raising now, but I'm going to raise like, is that, is that a, but, but not today. Is that like a, is that kosher? Is that, that's cool. Is that kind of what you're talking yeah. about here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not all investors like that. I mean, I think more invest, some investors are more transactional and they're like, come back to me when you're raising and that's fine. Let, you know, follow their lead on that. I think most of the good investors want to build a relationship over time and help entrepreneurs, even if they're unsure if they'll back them, if it's an authentic relationship and there's, there's, you know, bi-directional interest there. And so, yeah, is it, is it kosher to do that? Absolutely. You know, not all investors will engage, but reach out. That's a great way to get feedback. Investors also like it too, right? Investors don't like being put on a spot and saying, Hey, you need to invest now. Like they want to build a relationship. They want to give feedback. And one way to think about it too, is like investors jobs is to sort of have a pulse of what's going on in the market that they're investing in and keeping up with companies that are high potential, but not quite ready for them yet is part of their job. I think founders can also think about them as free consultants. So, you know, investors see tons of things. They're looking at pitch decks all day. They're meeting founders all day. They see a lot of patterns around what's scaling in, in business. And so use them for their expertise. And investors like to get asked to share their expertise. It's fun to add value. It's fun to feel valued. Whether you take that advice or not, I would say, obviously, understand the context. And just because an investor says something, it certainly isn't right. But hey, that's a free consultant for you that's giving you year potentially years worth of insight um, to help you grow your business. So I think it's totally worth it. I mean, obviously the thing you have to balance is you also got to grow the company, ship product, meet with customers, make key hires and all that sort of stuff. So how do you fit in also schmoozing with investors? That's why being a, a founder of a startup is so hard is you need to be able to do all of these things and they all take time. Absolutely. I appreciate you sharing that. And and let's say if other people are listening to this and they appreciate it too, they want to learn more about your, your, your firm or fund or you learn more about you, how can they find you kind of online um, or where, where do you have a presence on the internet, you know, over Twitter, website, email, how can someone kind of learn more? Yeah. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter and I'm Natty Z on Twitter. Also, you can go to matchstickventures.com has all our contact info there. And then uh, my email is open too. I'm natty at matchstickventures.com and that's N-A-T-T-Y. So always happy to engage with folks and um, yeah, look forward to connecting with people. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, um, coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you.